I was <clears throat> thinking this morning, I woke up before the sun was up, waiting uh, for that time. And of course, after a week of rain, it was actually kind of waiting to see the sun uh, and wondering if I could just see some rays coming through. And it didn't come through, but you know, the light came, the dawn came, whether we could see it specifically or not. Begin to think about what it would have been like 166 years ago on this very day to see the sun come up. We're, we're hoping to see the sun because it's been a week in San Diego without the sun and that's very r- rare and strange. But I imagine for thousands, uh, tens of thousands of people across this country and, and parts of Europe to see the sun come up on October 23, it was a Wednesday morning then that year, was not at all a welcome sight. Because the sun coming up, I'm sure it was cold in the northeast in October, probably frost on the ground. To see the sun coming up was a most unwelcome sight because it meant that it was now basically official. This is a very, very, very disappointing day. You know the story, likely, um, that for over 10 years, William Miller and many others have been preaching that on uh, that very soon, sometime between March of 1843 and March of 1844, Jesus would come, and they'd been preaching this for some time. And even before beginning to preach it, uh, in about 1830, William Miller had been studying it for about 15 years. He wanted to be sure. And he finally felt convicted and sure, and they began to preach it. And so for, for many, many years, they prepared people and preached, Jesus is actually coming. This is amazing. Well, the spring of 1844 came and it went, and so they experienced a bit of a disappointment. We talked about that last night a little bit. A little bit of a disappointment, but they thought, okay, there must be something something wrong here, and so they sort of went back to the books. They weren't crushed, and so they kept studying. And a man, by August, a few months later, a man by the name of Samuel Snow held a meeting in which he laid out pretty convincingly that actually, according to the Jewish calendar, the 10th day of the 7th month would be October 22 of that very year. In two months, this would be the day the sanctuary would be cleansed, which means Jesus is coming to this world. This is the day we've been hoping for. We have a day, folks, and it's only two months away. So the people went out, and they were preaching, and they were praying, and and they were working as hard as they could. And finally, after two months, the shops had been shut. The, the, uh, The fields were left unharvested, and they all gathered together in various places around. This is the day Jesus is going to come. We tried to imagine last night what that really would be like to actually expect. Tonight is the night Jesus is going to come. What does that do for you? The excitement, the thinking, go through the list of all the things that will be no more tomorrow. The work, the stresses, the the bills, the credit cards. Don't worry about those. It's done. That sinful self within me, that temptation to sin, gone. All of it. Tomorrow, it's all gone. We will be with Jesus. We will be with uh, quite the reunion of people, long lost relatives and, and others. What a day this will be. And it's when we begin to imagine that, that we can get just a tiny taste of what this morning would have been like 166 years ago. Man. Just to help us hear this a little bit more, last night again we heard actual words out of the journals of of some of these people. And I want to read two of them for you today. One is a name you'll recognize well, Ellen White, who was very young at the time. This is what she writes about that experience. Hear the very real humanness of, of of this writing. 
The love of Jesus filled every soul and beamed from face to face as we waited. And with inexpressible desires, they prayed, Come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. But he did not come. And now to turn again to the cares, the perplexities, and the dangers of life in full view of the jeers and the revilings of unbelievers who now scoffed as never before. It was a terrible trial of faith and patience. When Elder Himes came and visited Portland, Maine a few days after the passing of time, and he stated to the brethren that we should prepare for another cold winter, my feelings were almost uncontrollable, she writes. I left the place of meeting and wept like a child. This is the Northeast. This is New England in October. They were not on the cusp of a a beautiful spring or summer, as Chip pointed out last night. They were in trouble. No crops, no fields, and certainly neighbors that weren't excited to share with them what they didn't have anymore. This was a hard time they were facing. Hiram Edson, also one that would uh, be part of our history. He writes this, We confidently expected to see Jesus Christ and all the holy angels with him. They had then passed... the. The time had then passed and our disappointment became a certainty. Our fondest hopes and our expectations were blasted and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never imagined before. I mused in my own heart saying, my Advent experience has been the richest and the brightest of all my Christian experience. If this had proved a failure, what was the rest of my Christian experience worth? He's asking these questions. Has the Bible proved a failure, he wonders? Is there no God, no heaven, no golden home city, no paradise? Is all this but a cunningly devised fable? Is there no reality to our fondest hope and expectation of these things? And thus we had something to grieve and weep over if all our fondest hopes were lost. And as I said, we wept until the day dawned. You feel it? This is raw human stuff, isn't it? Complete disappointment. The greatest hopes they had ever had, and now you wake up the next morning and realize that it's it's not going to happen. Maybe for a few days they kept thinking, "Ah, maybe today, maybe today, but eventually those hopes faded for them. Have you imagined what this would be like? Have you you wondered and and stopped to ask the question, why Could, could this happen? I ask the question sometimes, why, why could God allow this to happen? After all, these are, these are about as faithful people as you're going to meet, not only during this time. Ellen White looks back and says, this was the highlight of my Christian experience preparing for the Advent. People were on a spiritual high like we can only imagine. They were faithful. They were praying together. They were preaching. And not only that, but up until the last few months, they were also active in abolition, the work against slavery. They were feeding the poor. These people had a well-rounded, robust faith moving up to this time. Couldn't God have just hinted to some of them, don't set the date and avoided all the, the disappointment? I ask why sometimes. How could this happen? On Facebook yesterday evening, uh, a member of Grace posted, sort of in, uh, you know, thinking about all this, feeling disappointed. 
and then actually put a smiley face because she wanted us to realize, hey, this is a, an avenous thing. She had many non-avenous friends who, who started wondering, oh, are you okay? You know, can there, is there something we can do and whatever? And so after a while, she has to respond, hey, um, actually, this is, I, I'm referring to a thing our church does is this time of year, we actually remember when uh, we, we set a date that Jesus was going to come, and of course it didn't happen, and so we, we remember that. And the next person commented, and this I can read, well, it's funny that your church would want to commemorate such an embarrassing doctrinal error. <laughs> You'd think that they'd just want to forget it, that it ever happened, and move on, but I guess that's just me. Smiley face, wink, wink. <laughs> I read that and I thought, I was tempted to reply, but I thought, oh, that's not my business, so I, I won't. But my reply would be, yes. That's exactly right. We are tempted to kind of forget it, but we're not going to because it's valuable not to. And that's what I want us to think about a little bit this morning. Why is it that we commemorate? We've even said celebrate this day in our history, early history, just before our church births. To do that, hold that question. Okay. To do that, I want us actually to go back 600 years before Jesus uh, to, to another time. The, the, the kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, is in a sad state of affairs. Um, things are not going well. There's a prophet named Habakkuk who is around that time, and he's, he's wondering what is going on. Because the people, God's people, are, are in a mess. It is supposed to be this place where God had told them how to live and how to be, and that the world would see them and everything, and it was a mess. He's worried about injustice that's happening. He's worried that there is violence and chaos everywhere. And so we hear... Uh, and, and on top of that, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans next door, are knocking on the door. They've already possibly come in and taken some of the best and the brightest of, of this kingdom off to their own. Daniel and his three friends, maybe the uh, priest and prophet Ezekiel, have, they've taken them off. So they're knocking on the door. Things are really a mess for the people of God. And the prophet Habakkuk is, is wondering about this. In fact, if we read his words, he's more than just wondering. He's pretty disturbed and wrestling with this. Where is God in this land? He looks around. Has God forsaken us? We've, have we forsaken God? Uh, why is there so much of this chaos and injustice happening? Why have people forgotten what they're doing and where they're going? Why is the wickedness winning the day? So if, if, you, if we were to read Habakkuk, and you can if your Bibles, it's one of those small prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. He starts off. Right away with verse 2 of his book. And he asks that age-old question. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2 says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? It's a question that many people have, have called, right? And this afternoon at Grace will be seeing some of the Psalms that ask that same question. How long, God? What, what's going on here? Where, where are you? Habakkuk is looking around and said, this is not what it's supposed to be like among your holy people. Remember, you have blessed us so that we could be a blessing to the world, and we were supposed to live this way, and things are a mess. God, what is going on here? Are you going to do anything about this mess that we've made of ourselves? Furthermore, the Babylonians are about, they're knocking at the door. I'm worried, we're worried that something drastic is going to happen. If that happens, then we really don't know because you have said this is our land, this is our kingdom, the, the kingdom of David will never end. But, you know, if Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes us away, the kingdom may have a little problem. God, what's going on here? 
Well, if you read Habakkuk, it's interesting because God does answer very quickly Habakkuk's question. How how long, O Lord? What are you doing? And God's answer is a rather surprising one, but it's a little bit typical of the prophets. Because God comes in, he says, don't worry, prophet Habakkuk. Actually, you don't have to wait much longer to see an end to the injustice and the chaos and the wickedness that's in your land. You're actually not going to have to wait too long because actually the Babylonians are coming and they're going to take everything and destroy Jerusalem and the temple and then there won't be any more injustice uh, in your land because all the people will be in Babylon. So it will be over. Well, the prophet Habakkuk, it's not really the answer he was expecting. How long, God, are you going to take care of this? And so the next section in verses 12 through 17, basically, and you could read these later, basically Habakkuk's answer to God is, whoa, whoa, whoa. That actually wasn't the answer I was looking for. In fact, God, don't you think that's perhaps taking it a little too far? Isn't that a little too extreme? After all, yes, we've been wicked, but far more wicked in your holy sight would be these Babylonians. You've heard of them. You've seen them. The way they torture people, the way they are violent, the way they worship other gods. How can the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, how can they be the answer to this problem? That's even worse than we are. And Habakkuk the prophet, by chapter 2, does something interesting. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, the way my version, uh, New Revised Standard Version says it, I will stand at my watch now. So he's said these things to God. And he says, I will stand at my watch now and station myself here on the ramparts, on the wall, and I will look to see what God will say to me and what he will answer to my complaint. What will be his answer to my complaint? Now, think about this. The prophet has said, God, how long? God answers. The prophet is not very satisfied with God's answer, and he says, you know what? I've responded to God. I, in fact, I've registered my complaint with God. No, God, the answer of the Babylonians, that can't be right. And now I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to wait, and I'm going to see how God responds to my complaint. It's interesting, these prophets, isn't it? The way they can interact with God. So God responds. Here's what God says to him, verse, starting with Verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, write this vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a person who's running may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and it does not lie. If it seems to tarry, to delay, wait for it. It will surely come. It won't delay. And now look at the proud, says God. Their spirit is not right in them, but... The righteous live by their faith. Now here you may hear, your ears may perk up, a very famous Christian phrase, right? The King James Version says, the just will live by faith. That goes all the way back to Habakkuk, right? The the righteous person will live by, and maybe the word might be better, faithfulness. Many of you know, this is a very famous phrase, but also has been a very difficult one to translate. And I won't bore you with going through all the Hebrew and everything, but as we try and figure out the right English words, one of the tricky things is that in Hebrew, it could honestly either be translated, the righteous person will live by their faith or or faithfulness, or the righteous person will live by its faithfulness, in which case it must be talking about the faithfulness of this vision that God's been talking about. It could be the righteous people will live by their faithfulness and steadfastness, or the righteous people will live by the the reliability, the steadfastness of this vision that I have given, this promise for the future, God's word, God's promise. We live 
by our faithfulness or God's faithfulness. And maybe it's a little bit of both. In other words, the righteous person will stake their lives on the reliability, our faith, stake our lives, our faith, on the reliability that God will do what he says he will do, even if it seems to delay. So sometimes when you have these contention things about translation, I like to go both. Yes, it's both. Our faithfulness is based on staking our faith on God's faithfulness and reliability, right? Interesting passage from the prophets. What's going on here again, remember? So, in in summary, the prophet cries, How long do we have to wait, God, for you to listen? God answers, but the prophet is not content with God's answer. And the prophet registers a complaint with God and says, I'm not sure that's what I was looking for. I'm crying out for justice and an end to the chaos and, and, and violence in Israel, and you offer Babylonian, Babylon as a solution? Um, my question remains. Here's my complaint. Uh, when will you finally fix this broken world that we are living in? God, the prophet asks. It's bold, isn't it? Now imagine, imagine as Habakkuk is standing there on the wall waiting for God's answer. A chariot drives by, and on that chariot he knows there's a bumper sticker, and he sees and he looks closely. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. The prophet sees that bumper sticker and says, oh, oops, is that, is that the way we're supposed to do this? Because that's not how I've been going about this. This prophet is not content with the answer that he was given, and he files a complaint with God. There's a back and forth going on here, and I wonder if it's because sometimes we have this thing where we think of we think about faith, because that's what we're talking about today, isn't it? Faith. How do we have faith in the face of this great disappointment and everything? We think about faith, and sometimes we think, well, faith is the opposite of doubt and questions, right? So they're on a scale. So you have faith or you have doubt and questions. And if you have one or the other, if you have faith, then you must not have doubt and questions. But if you move over here to where you have doubt and questions, then, well, by the very nature of it, there's no more faith. And we put these two as as opposites. I want to suggest this morning, as we continue to read through this Bible story and reflect on our own story, that... Doubt and questions are not the opposite of faith. In fact, apathy is the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is shrugging our shoulders and going home and throwing in the towel and say, forget it, I don't care anymore. This whole thing doesn't work, I'm done, I don't care, I'm done. Apathy is the opposite of faith. Habakkuk, the prophet, asked questions of God precisely because He had faith in who God is. The prophet Habakkuk had faith that God is a good God, that God is a God of love, that God has a plan for his people. And because that idea and that belief and the present reality didn't match, he had to ask a question. If he didn't have faith, he would have said, ah, forget it, whatever, we'll go back to trying to put life back together. It's because the prophet had faith in who God is that he said, God... This isn't matching up. This doesn't seem to make sense to me. I register my complaint, and I need an answer. And he did that. And, his, and God's answer was, maybe still not quite satisfactory to the prophet, but it was the answer that Habakkuk decides to give us. Here's the answer. God says, there is a vision for the future. It's coming. 
Write down this vision. There is hope. I have something more. I know Babylon is not the final solution. There is something more that's coming. It's a vision for the future. I promised it. Write it down. You can count on it. In fact, the righteous person, the one who is right with me, those are the ones who live, who stake their lives on faithfulness. Their faithfulness to the fact that God is faithful. The righteous person lives and stakes their life on the fact that God will come through in the end. So what's at stake here is our trust in the trustworthiness of God. See what I mean? It's both. Our faith, our trust, that God is indeed worthy to be trusted, able to be trusted, that God is good and reliable. Do we believe that God is reliable? That is the question here. Do you, do you start to hear themes of another very old Adventist story, that great controversy theme? What's at stake is the character of God. Can God be trusted? Is God truly good? Evidence sometimes to the contrary. Can we still say we know God is good? God has a plan. The end will look better than it looks right now. Far better. God, in essence, is putting God's own character on the line here. He's putting it it out there. Trust me. I will come through. It may not look like what you're expecting, but I will come through. If you're a righteous one, you are staking your lives on the fact that I am reliable. I will come through. Trust me, says, I, I've got a plan. I have a vision for the future. And, and it's a, a vision for the world's future where, yes, justice will finally reign through the world. Tyranny will come to the end. All the Babylons will be gone. And finally, everything will be put right. Do you believe that that is the future that I will provide for you? Do you trust that I will be faithful? In other words, do you have faith in me? And as Shakespeare would say, I think, now there's the rub. <laughs> do you have faith in me, right? Do we have faith? That's the big question. That's the Christian question we're asking all the time, right? Do I have faith? Do we have faith? How's your faith? The question you'll hear, right? Can you imagine asking that question on October 23, 1844 to some people? How's, how's your faith doing? How is your faith in God? We heard from Ellen White. She said she and others had a terrible trial of faith and patience. Hiram Edson, too, asking if his whole Christian experience had added up to nothing. How's your faith? We might conclude then by hearing those things that, well, they have questions. They have They are weeping. They have maybe even some doubts. They have all these things. Well, we would conclude then, well, their faith wasn't doing that well. Because if we have doubts and questions, then faith is over there and it's not there. But what I find deeply inspiring about our story, and why I think it's worth remembering every year, even though it seems like something we want to sweep under the couch of of history, is that The story of those that would move on to found our Seventh-day Adventist church, the story of those people doesn't end at the Great Disappointment, does it? 
and Ernie in a, be- in a beautiful prayer alluded to some of the other things that now we are able to think of the story as, right? Thousands and thousands of people went home on October 23 and threw in the towel and said, we, either we've been duped or we were completely out of, out of line and we can hardly blame this, them for this, right? This is a, an incredible experience. I hope that I wouldn't have done the same. But a few of those people, including the two people that we've heard from with their agony, raw emotion, they took the very bold, the very difficult, and the very faithful road of saying, we were wrong about that. Because they didn't say God was wrong and let us down. They took that difficult, bold, and faithful step of saying, we were wrong. And some of them had committed years to the sermon that they were preaching, the message that they were preaching. It doesn't mean God has been unfaithful to us. It in fact means that we missed it. We were wrong. And yes, I know the history. They quickly reinterpreted what happened there in heaven on October 22. But reinterpreting still means starting at the place where we go, our first interpretation was wrong. We missed it. We were wrong. And this, I think, gave them an incredible humility as they moved forward in forming what would be a very vibrant, wonderful heritage that I am so proud to be a part of. Because it wasn't the last time that this would happen, is it? Very soon after, here's what they were thinking. If Christ moved into the final, the most holy place of the sanctuary, then the door of probation must be shut. And that means if the door of probation is shut, then there's... People have missed their chance. So who's in now is in. Who's out now is out. It's called the shut door theory. And it's interesting because that meant, well, there's no need for missionary work, is there? Because if if we already know who's in and who's out, then missions won't do anything. Can you imagine the Seventh-day Adventist church without a missionary spirit? (laughs) In the first years, they didn't have one because they thought it's already been settled. And then they finally had to recognize, okay, maybe that's not quite right. Shut door, wrong. And they moved on. And of course, we get missionary spirit that moves all over the entire globe. Ellen and James laughed and even poked fun a little bit at some fanatical people who were giving up pork. <laughs> at some point in their history, early in the history, they said, no, no, no. That's for fanatics. We don't need to do that. Well, turns out Ellen White has some visions, and they recognize giving up pork, that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'm sorry for, for poking fun, right? They recognized, hey, we missed it in the past. God has given us new light. We move forward in that new light. It's not God that's been unfaithful. We missed it. In 1888, Ellen and James both had to redirect the brethren and the sisters back to a focus on the grace of God because they had gotten kind of pulled over into the law and everything. And they went through a lot at that time, recognizing we've been going in the wrong direction. We need to go this way. And they were able to do that. Listen to this amazing statement by Ellen White. This is the Review and Herald from 1892. And think about the Adventism you know. And hear Ellen White saying this in 1892. Long-cherished opinions must not be regarded as infallible. However long that men may have entertained certain views, if they are not clearly sustained by the written word, they should be discarded. Those who sincerely desire truth will not be reluctant to lay open their positions for investigation and criticism. We have many lessons to learn, she says, and many, many lessons to unlearn. 
God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think that they will never have to give up a cherished view, never have occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. (laughs) For her, disappointment was those people who think they've got it all and never have to change. Now, it's easy for us to take that statement and, and say it at the person that disagrees with us. See, Ellen White said that you need to be able to give up a cherished view, and then I have to recognize, wait, she's probably talking to me. I need to be able to give up a cherished view at times. But disappointment comes, I think, and Ellen White was recognized, is when we think we never have to give up a cherished view or recognize that we were wrong, God is now giving us more light and we move forward. Only God is infallible. The faith that Ellen White and the others had and carried with them was a faith that was big enough for disappointment, for questions, for being wrong, for doubt, disillusionment, all those things, those things in life that leave us wondering and having questions. Their faith was big enough to have all of that. It wasn't either you have faith or you have questions. It was, you know what? Sometimes we have questions. Sometimes we have doubts. Sometimes we get it wrong. And all of that, my faith is big enough for all of that. Because my God is big enough for all of that. It was a faith that was grounded in only one thing. God is faithful. Sometimes we trust a lot of things. Sometimes we trust our cherished opinions or views. And that's human, and I get that because I do it a lot. But only one thing is worth putting our faith in, and that is the fact God is faithful. God has the future taken care of and planned for us, the future of this world. We don't know what our lives hold, but God has the big plan taken care of. 700 years after Habakkuk, that prophet who stood on the wall and said, I wonder what God will answer to my complaint. There's another preacher who writes a sermon that ends up getting titled Hebrews. He wrote this sermon to people, to Christians now, who seem to be struggling under persecution and very difficult things that must have left them asking some difficult questions. They're weary under persecution. They're wondering where God is. And now that they believe in Jesus, why has life become so incredibly confusing and difficult? And so the preacher writes Hebrews to them, and he reminds them. He's one place, by chapter 10, he reminds them of this old prophet Habakkuk, who said and asked the same question, How long, O Lord, are you going to leave us waiting for your answer? Leave us in silence, how long will I cry for help and you will not listen? And he also reminds them of God's answer to that question. The righteous one will live by faithfulness. My people will live because they're staking their faith in the one thing that we can have faith in. Is that an I will be faithful? Because now the people had an even fuller vision of that God will indeed be faithful. Jesus had been among them. The promise that God had promised from the ages of old had a huge portion of it fulfilled. God had come and provided victory over evil and over death and all those things, and it was only a matter of time before we will finally see the whole picture completed. They had even more reason to recognize God will be faithful to what he has said. God is worth 
our faith and our trust. And he reminds them of the cloud of witnesses that have gone before. All of those who had faithfully gone before them. And he says this to them. Remember, all of these, even though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. All these people who are the heroes of faith, none of them got to see the final product. None of them died saying, I see exactly what God had in mind and has in mind. None of them fully received what we are longing for and hoping for, and yet they continued believing God is faithful. God will always be faithful to the end. They, dis- they saw the vision of what God had promised for the future, and they said, we want to stake our lives on that vision. God will be faithful and bring that about. They saw this vision that... God has a world planned in which everything will finally be made right again, where justice will reign for all people, where sickness and sadness and even death will be no more. And they looked at that and said, that's where I want to be. And if God has promised that, I can trust that God will bring that about. And if this is the direction to get there, I will stay on this direction. They trusted that God is faithful. God has been faithful And God will be faithful even to the end. And so they journeyed on in faith. And I think that's, church family, what matters about faith. What we stake our faith in is one thing and one thing only, that God will be faithful. When the one thing we place all our faith in is God's character, God's love, God's faithfulness, then I think is when we're able to have this robust three-dimensional kind of faith that has room for the hard things of life. That Faith that is big enough for our doubts, big enough for our disappointments, even our disillusionments, big enough for our questions and our struggling and our wrestling. It's then that we have faith deep enough and strong enough to help us make it through. It's then, when we stake our faith in God and His faithfulness, that we have faith that endures, faith that gives us hope. May the God who is faithful remind you and fill you with hope so that we too can stake our lives, our faithfulness, in the fact that God is faithful to us.